Hello, my friends. Welcome back to the program. We're going to talk about you and maybe writing a book. Our guest is Quentin Miller, who is the professor, a professor and chair of English at Suffolk University and one of a number of wonderful professors that I speak with from the great Suffolk University. We're fortunate to have that resource here in town. Thanks for being with us, sir. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Now, a lot of folks with this pandemic have a lot of time, and many have decided this is a good time to write a book. I'm, I am sort of one of those, and I'll, I'll confess that I hope to learn some things for myself during this interview. And uh, let me tell, talk a little bit more about you. You teach a number of, a lot of courses. You can't possibly teach all these in one semester. <laughs> no. Introduction to Literature, American Literature, Bob Dylan and the Beat Generation, and then an honors course in Bob Dylan and the Beat Generation. Out of curiosity, what is the difference between the the, reg the regular course and the honors course? I usually Bob Dylan. have, yeah, one or there's not that much of a difference really. It's just a different population of students who are, you know, maybe looking to challenge themselves with an additional text or two and writing an additional paper. So it's just kind of a, a turned up version of it. All right. And is that a course on history of the Beat Generation and Bob Dylan, or is it a, a writing course? So it's it's more of a history of, of the two and kind of how one leads into the other, how Dylan was influenced by the Beat Generation, but then, you know, took things in his, in his own directions uh, afterwards. So, uh, yeah, it's it's about the poetry first and the novels and then, and then the music. Students usually can't wait to get to the Bob Dylan part, but then they discover the Beat Generation and they get really excited about that. So. All right, Professor Miller, let's get to this. How do you yeah. know if what you have to say warrants a book? It's a good question. I, I think that the, you know the, the big key to writing a book is to reading a lot of books, actually. And uh, you know, you really can't. Uh, you've got to read if you want to write. And I think that the more, if you're just sort of inspired, but you're not really a reader, then then you're probably doing yourself a disservice. You know, you, you've got to understand what other people have brought to the table and uh, how whatever it is you want to write about fits into the landscape. Is it? Uh, you know, something brand new and unique? Probably not. It's something that adds to a, a broader conversation. And so I think you have to enter that conversation uh, in order to, or before you can really contribute to it. Uh, first day of my fiction writing classes, I always ask students what they've read lately. And I'm surprised a lot of them kind of go back to the books that they had read in high school, meaning that they hadn't read, read a lot lately. <laughs> and, and it's like, well, you want to be a writer, so you've got to do a bit of reading and understanding uh you know where it is you're gonna you're gonna enter into this and i think it just builds confidence you know once once you've read a lot of other books then you start thinking well i do have something to say um nobody has said this before and i think that's that's the moment when it clicks and you think all right i'm ready seems like fiction would be exponentially more difficult than nonfiction, especially if the nonfiction were to be about a thing you know because writing about a thing you know all you need to do is fully and interestingly tell the story but you don't have to create the story in fiction. Right. You gotta you gotta create this, which which creates a, another layer and a really really hard layer of uh, yeah. of work. And it's yeah. difficult to to for example writing dialogue that sounds natural is extremely difficult. Correct? Yeah, it is, and it's really at odds with uh, the way a lot of us have been taught to write. You know, for instance, and. In, Grammar school, uh, middle school, high school, you're, you're taught never to use contractions in, you know, like uh, you have to write would not instead of wouldn't. 
But if you're writing dialogue, it's all contractions. That's the way people talk. You know, I just said that. Uh, I wouldn't say that is the way people talk. So you have to kind of teach yourself to be a little bit less formal and develop an ear for, for the way people talk if you want dialogue to be authentic. And I think if you're writing fiction, it's got to be. There's always dialogue in fiction. Uh, so there's a lot of listening involved, but I guess that's kind of parallel to what I was saying before about reading. You know, you kind of have to observe a lot. Uh, but I want to go back to something else you said too. Is it's terrifying to a lot of people to to kind of just create fiction because you think, well, I'm I'm you know, uh, I'm de developing a world, something that's not real, something that's that's kind of only in my imagination. Um, and that's when people kind of get writer's block. But I, I think that writer's block can be, and this was, would be another tip I would give, I guess, it's only real if you want it to be, you know, uh, if, if, you, if you're kind of worried about um, whatever it is you're creating, you have to kind of become courageous uh, in order to do that and just say, well, I'm not really making anything up. I'm observing the way the world is and I'm reporting it. And so it is, in a sense, not that different from nonfiction. I'm, I think, maybe hypersensitive to dialogue because I often say, no one would say that. And, and a lot of times the no one would really say that is a result of people trying to explain stuff through dialogue, like explain the setting through dialogue. They overstate what is going on mm -hmm. instead of just saying, making a sentence they try to get some explanation of what's going on in there and they would never say that in real life they wouldn't need to explain that thing because it would be known to them anyway yeah yeah so we sort of talked about what are the best reasons to write a book and and, and not great reasons i suppose what one is just the ego of i want to write a book it's probably a bad bad reason right yeah, because I think one of the the big things to keep in mind when you're writing is the reader. You know, that you're you're doing this uh, for someone else, and I think a, a lot of the times people think, well, it's it's my whatever I wrote, it's coming from my soul. You know, it's so so the way I I expressed it is it's got to be right, right? Well, you always kind of have to keep the reader in mind, uh, and this is like the first rule of rhetoric. Writing is situational. It means that every time you're writing, it's for a purpose of some kind. So people write all the time, right? We write texts, we write emails, we write, uh, you know, uh, you know, responses to what people have written online. So we're constantly writing and all those situations are a little bit different. Uh, and we adapt. I mean, it's amazing how people adapt to writing situations. We've all learned how to use emojis in our texts, for instance. It's not, there's nothing natural about that, but it's something that we've learned to do. Uh, so yeah, I think that, that if, if you're writing for yourself, that's great, and it's called a diary, right? It's not something that that really is out there for the world. It's, it's kind of for you. If you're writing for someone else, um, this goes back to the idea of reading. That, that you know, you kind of think about what what the pleasures of reading are, what the expectations of reading are, what the conventions of reading are. Uh, so if you've got one type of reader in mind, that's great. If it's many types of readers, you've got to do a lot of different things. Um, so if you can kind of imagine who the reader is, uh, and Think about you know communication. That's that's really one of the points of, of any kind of writing. Uh, you're communicating to someone, and what is it that you want to say to that person, and how are they going to receive it? What are their expectations? What are their you know what are they looking for? What are they hoping to get out of it? Back back to dialogue. As mm -hmm. you mentioned, the bulk of today's writing is extremely abbreviated. It's texts, etc. Do you, does that drag down the quality of of writing as well if you're going to be natural and real in the way you write 
dialogue, then don't you have to dumb it way down below wh what you're comfortable with? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I think um, in some ways it does. It, it, it's, you know, the way we communicate has become really abbreviated, like almost little guttural, not, not even words sometimes, like, you know, TTYL or something that, that there's that way of kind of shortening everything we do. Uh, and yet w when we talk to other people, I think conversation hasn't really changed. If you're, if you were to put, you know, uh, a text exchange in, into a, a short story, for instance, go back and forth, it would look really different from people actually talking. Uh, okay. so again, thinking about the situation and the way people interact or react, like if, if you're in a really tense situation or if you're sitting really close to someone or if you're, you know, uh, if you're in a subway or something like that and trying to have a conversation and things are loud around you, you start to speak a little bit differently. So I think that if just kind of imagining whatever the situation is within a story, if we're talking about fiction, uh, you know, it'll change. And, and again, the ear of the, the writer has to um, account for that and, and, and really think about what somebody would say in this situation, not what somebody would say in all situations, because we change, you know, we, we're, we're human. Circling back to something you mentioned earlier in order to, to write, you really need to read. Is there a book, if you had to recommend one book as a template that had all the pieces necessary for a decent book and they're clearly there, do you have a book you would or maybe a book you do recommend as a template for, mm. say, writing fiction or writing nonfiction? Mm. That's an excellent question, and I always have I always have trouble with with the you know um, recommend a book, recommend a movie because I just think my own memory is so bad. So I just got to go back to whatever the most recent thing uh, I've I've read is. Right now, I'm reading uh, for I don't know the tenth time, twentieth time in my life, uh, James Joyce's short story collection, Dubliners, because I'm taking a group of students to Ireland this semester during spring break. We're teaching, we're, we're reading uh, Irish and Irish American literature. And I was just rereading hers, you know, published in 1911. What a spectacular collection of short stories that is. And it's, it's just kind of got everything in it. And every story is a, a, a bit different, you know, that they don't all seem the same. And, and he kind of nails it. He, he, he really draws you into the world. You can picture the characters, you can hear their voices, you can see the scene all the things we really want to do when we, when we read a book of fiction. So at this moment right now, that's one that I would recommend. Would you recommend a person learn the art of the short story before writing a book? Or is that an unnecessary and time-consuming detour? Because that's a, a thing on its own. That's a, a mm -hmm. joyful, joyful thing, the, 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 the great short story. Uh, yeah. Is that a waste of time or is that a good plan? It's a good question. And, you know, when I teach fiction writing, um, we really don't have a, a lot of students will want to be working on a novel, but where we only have 14 weeks together or something. So it's not it's not the same thing. Um, I think it's harder to write a short story in a lot of ways. And, and other writers back me up on that. The, those who have written both novels and, and short stories say it's actually write, harder to, to write a short story because they're so compressed, you know, because you have you, you can't waste any time. It's the same is obviously true of, of poetry, that there's every word matters. And uh, in a lot of ways, it's a great exercise because it gets you to pay really careful attention to language, which is, uh, which is what I think the goal of any writer should be. So the more compressed it is, uh, the, you know, the, the, the more kind of on your toes you have to be as a writer. There's something called flash fiction and not too many people really read it. 
um, but a lot of people write it. Flash fiction is a short story that's either defined as being 1,000 words or less or sometimes 750 words or less. So really short, really compact. And you're thinking, how can I tell a story in, in that amount of time uh, or with that you know, limited amount of space? And it just kind of forces you to do things very efficiently. So I think it's, it's a good practice. It's kind of like how a musician would have to you know, play scales over and over again just to kind of get the, the muscle memory there so that they can go on to do more ambitious things. Right, and, um, and yeah, some, some mistakes, some writing mistakes would show up there in a short story that mm -hmm. you could submit to an, a, a wiser, more experienced person, and they could say, oh, yeah, this, don't do that, do more of this. And so you could get that out of the way in the short story before you attempt the novel or yeah. a, a book. That's right. Yeah, and you bring up a good point, too. It was one that I, I wanted to, um, to mention at some point today. It's the role of an editor. A lot of people think of writing as this uh, really solitary activity, right? We've got some vision of, of writers as people like Emily Dickinson, who kind of you know, never left her, her little space and never really showed her writing to the world, or Marcel Proust, a uh, French writer uh, who wrote Remembrance of Things Past, who, who put himself into this, this room that was lined with cork so that he couldn't hear the outside world. So it's just, you know, kind of him and his, and his imagination or his mind. Uh, that's a really romantic notion of what writing is. It's not usually like that at all. It's an exchange. And I, I think that one of the things that you have to do, and I was talking about the, the reader before the role of the reader, you have to show people your work and get feedback on it. That's what we do in, in writing workshops. Uh, and I think it's just super important to have a trusted group of readers, people who are gonna give you honest feedback and say, you know, like you said before, nobody talks like that. Or, look, you're you know you're 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 kind of uh, off on a tangent here. When I was writing my dissertation, I had a a dissertation advisor, one of my uh, the assistant advisors, and she was famous for her purple pen. Right, she, it was not a red pen, but it was a purple pen. And she handed me back a chapter of my dissertation at one point. And she says, "I think it'd be better this way." And with her purple pen, she had put an X through. 27 straight pages that I've written, 27 pages in a row. Uh, and I thought that this was like, you know, stabbing me in the heart or something. But she was absolutely right. It was like, this is, I was, you know, off in the wrong direction. Um, so writers need to develop kind of communities of people and an editor is one of them. Uh, but, you know, maybe your spouse is another one. Maybe your friend is another one. Maybe ideally another writer uh, is, is somebody who can give you good feedback and say, I'll read your story if you read mine or I'll read your chapter if you read mine. What do you think? Uh, and and then talk about it and uh, and like you say, get specific feedback. It would be better without this. It would be stronger if you did this. You're missing this. I can't picture this character. I can't see where this is taking place or whatever it is. Uh, so that establishing a community, I think, is is absolutely crucial. Seems like a class. <clears throat> Excuse me, taking a class would be great because <clears throat> there's the teacher's not your friend. The teacher's mm -hmm. there to instruct you and. I feel like it might be easier easier to take criticism from a teacher first. You're going to trust that feedback much more. It's less personal. Do you agree with that? And and where's a good place for people to get to take writing courses that aren't enrolled in a full on university? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, my son is doing this now. He lives in New York, and he's uh, he's found a writing group that he initially you know took a class. It was just kind of a continuing education class and they all gave each other feedback there was a teacher kind of like a group leader you know wasn't getting wasn't giving grades but was giving really good feedback and kind of telling them how to get published and so forth 
Uh, in Boston, there's a great organization called Grub Street. It's sort of located in the Seaport District, and they do readings there, and, and they have a lot of classes that they offer on weekends and nights. Uh, and they're led by, you know, workshop leaders who are in the field, and, and they do they have uh, readings that happen there. They've got a bookstore there. It's a wonderful place. Uh, a lot of colleges, universities in the area will have continuing education courses. That's that's the way to do it. Um, so yeah, there's definitely opportunities out there for people who are not enrolled in college to, to you know, find that community. And I would say it's absolutely crucial, not only for getting that feedback, but also just for kind of keeping you honest. One of the things that happens uh, is that people will say they want to write a book, but the motivation uh, is one thing, but then life happens, right? That there's, there's not the time to do it. Writing is, is something that you kind of, and everyone figures this out at some point, you just have to dedicate the time to it. And if you're going to be presenting your work to other people, it's like having a deadline and uh, people need deadlines. They really do. It's, it's just hard to, hard to manage it along with everything else that's happening in, in one's life. Right. You need the specter of shame hanging over your head. <laughs> yeah. Or at least I, I, performance. <laughs> I didn't have a chance to do it. Okay. <laughs> what, why don't you, if you could give us some tips, tricks, do's, don'ts that we haven't touched upon now. It might be helpful to a first-time writer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a um, couple of things. One, one is that you said earlier. You know, how do I know um, when I'm ready to to do this thing? How do I know that I have something to say, essentially? And I, I would say that everyone has something to say. So that there's there's something about kind of getting over whatever the demons are that, that that have been haunting you. If you had some, you know, fourth grade teacher who used to hit you with a ruler on the knuckles every time you used a comma wrong or something like that, that can really inhibit somebody. Uh, and I would say just to kind of relax because the whole process of writing, just think about writing as a process is, uh, is, is crucial there. Like give yourself permission to write a really bad book or a bad first draft or whatever it is. Not to say it's going to come out perfect every time. Uh, initially, you know, there's this, this myth that, well, if you write it, then it, it doesn't have to change at all. You've just got to kind of commit to the idea that it's, it happens. It doesn't all happen at once. It happens in stages. Uh, it's a process. There's pre-writing, writing, rewriting, re uh, revising, editing, and, and those things uh, happen slowly over time. Uh, but they happen. And as long as you're kind of committed to it, then, you know, it's fine. If some, if, if you throw, a thousand words on the page one day and, and somebody comes in with a purple pen and, you know, crosses them all out. Um, that's okay. You still have to kind of get to that point. So I think kind of giving yourself permission to, uh, to, to, to write that bad uh, first draft is, is fine. I'd say the sec uh, second thing that's kind of related to that is, um, is kind of developing good daily habits, uh, right? Like writing in a journal. Um, the word journal comes from the French jour, which means day. The word diary comes from dia in Spanish, which means day, right? So the idea is to kind of write every day uh, and, and really find the time to do it. Some writers like Hemingway used to give himself a word count every day. He wouldn't stop writing until he got into a certain uh, number of words. Other writers develop rituals uh, Jonathan Franzen, apparently, every time he sits down to write, he smokes precisely seven cigarettes. I've heard this anyway, uh, during the, the writing time. So that, you know, that's the amount of time he's going to need to, to get to whatever uh, he can. So, so actually, you know, I'm not telling people to go out and smoke if they want to be a writer or something, but to find their, uh, to, to find their habits, to, to develop those habits so that you are committing to it, you're putting time in. 
uh, and also again allowing yourself to to fail so that you can succeed. That's that's uh, you know it's kind of crucial. Um, another thing I'd say is that passion and energy have to really be behind every type of writing, no matter what it is. I said there's many different types of writing, you know, it's situational or whatever. But if there's no passion and energy, if you don't really feel like, um, you know, you're really behind something, uh, it'll come through. It'll, it'll be obvious so that you have to infuse the writing with, with. And I'm not saying it has to be about an exciting subject, something that's exciting for everyone. Uh, but you have to be kind of excited about it uh, in order for it, for the writing to, to kind of pop and move along. Um, and then finally, I guess I would say, yeah, this this uh, close attention to language, to, to really thinking about exactly what the right word is going to be when you're revising, when you kind of go back to it. Say, am I expressing that right? Does it, is there a better word to say the same thing? Does this sentence need to go on as long as it is? Uh, would it have a better effect if I rethought it and, and chopped it up? Just because you've written something, uh, it doesn't mean that you have to keep it. We call this killing your darlings in, in, in writing. You have to, you know, if you, if you wrote something that you're really attached to, you have to also be willing uh, to get rid of it, to, to say maybe it's stronger uh, without that. I see a comment coming up, passion is needed to do anything. Yeah, absolutely. You, you just really got to put your, you know, your heart and soul into it uh, if, if you want it to, uh, to be valuable. All right. Uh, I'm cliches are a buzzkill for me. And um, can you give us some sort of guide to cliche avoiding? Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, what I've done with my students is to, to have them identify cliches when they see them and then talk about why, uh, why cliches are such a buzzkill. It's, it's because it, it feels unoriginal, right? That if, if you're, you know, uh, saying something that other people have said before, and it's just very obvious. There's kind of like word packages too. I'll, I'll show to students. Like if I were to say hustle and what's the next word? Everybody would say bustle, right? It's, it, everybody. We just know that those words kind of go together. When you find a word package like that, something that everybody says all the time, uh, it starts to seem like a cliche. So there's got to be an original way to, to, to express it. The only time a cliche would really work I think in uh, in fiction, if you're writing fiction, is if you were writing about a character who thought about the world in terms of cliches, and you were kind of you know examining that character, um, and that would show that you know you can still have a cliche in your writing, but it's there for a purpose. It's there to to kind of call our attention to the, the fact that this character doesn't think very originally or something. Right. Um, yeah. So those those cliches that's that's a way to get back to to you know a precise. Uh, way of thinking about something. What's another way to express that that cliche? Right. What's a way that's that might you know push it in another direction that doesn't make it a cliche? And folks, if you're worried about not recognizing cliches and not really knowing what we mean, if it's a phrase or a word package that people, if you've heard people use it a bunch, don't use it. Mm -hmm. is, that, is that a good way to put it? Or change it instead of hustle and bustle. You, it's kind of cool to say hustle and some other cool word. Yeah, oh, there's, an, yeah. Oh, there's, an, there's an online thesaurus. Look yeah. up another word for bustle, and that would yeah. be that would turn a cliche in, in, into something cool, which is almost cooler than not using it at all. Sometimes. Yeah, that, that's right. Yeah, there there can actually be you know a way to to kind of explode open that that cliche. Uh, I remember one of the, my very first things I was writing for a fiction workshop. 
I had a character who was who was up on the top of the Eiffel Tower and he was looking down at the people below and he said, they look like ants, which is what everybody says, right? And then he caught himself. He said, actually, no, they don't look like ants at all. And he started, you know, kind of working against his own way of thinking and, and uh, trying to, I forget what he came up with, but it was, uh, you know, he actually corrected himself within it. And, uh, and, and that was, you know, another thing to do with a cliche is just to, to kind of get rid of it, to put it out in the open and then say, no, that's not, that's not actually the way people look. All right. And folks, if you ever uh, involved in some news event and the media interviews you, please also be aware of the cliche. For example, <laughs> if you are caught in a tornado, and you're interviewed, please do not say, it sounded like a freight train coming at me. <laughs> think of, like, if you're going to get interviewed, think ahead. Think of another word for freight train or something. <laughs> do me a favor. And as far as far as over, overused words, like, I should like is one of them, sorry. Mm-hmm. Although in this case, it might be appropriate. But uh, words like amazing, please. Never say, never say that word. Never write it ever again. That one has to go. Are there any <laughs> other words that you're hearing? The the list of most overused words or the words to get rid of. A list just came out. What are a few words you would put on that list that, at least for this time, this period, please don't use. Do you have any? <laughs> <laughs> I think everyone's got their their pet peeves. Mine is the word impactful. I hate that word. Uh, you know, impactful for me. Just it, it was a word that was sort of it came out of nowhere. I don't know, five or ten years ago, and I think it should go back to nowhere. It doesn't really. It's not a word that means anything. Again, if you're thinking about precise language, to say something is impactful, it, it just doesn't doesn't do it for me. Um, but I think those words change for everybody. And and one thing that I've noticed with writing, you know, is that if somebody uses a word once, they'll sometimes use it again, without realizing it. Um, even if it's a perfectly fine word, they'll, they'll do it in, in close proximity. Like in the next um, paragraph, the, the word perfectly would show up after you just used the word perfectly. I almost think it's just something our brains do sometimes. Like you use the word, ah, that worked. And they use it again. And, uh, and I think that during the revision process, again, you know, first draft, feel free to throw all the the amazings and impactfuls and freight trains and everything else that <laughs> that you want. But then when you go back and, and look at it again with fresh eyes, that's what revising means, right? To see again. Um, then you start seeing that or somebody else points it out to you. Like, look, you just use that word three times in one paragraph. What's a better word? What's a different way to, to say that so that it, it pops a little bit better, that it, you know, moves ahead a little bit more too. All right, I try to keep this to about half an hour. I, I did mm-hmm. go over yesterday, and I, I vowed I wouldn't today. So <laughs> let me wrap this up with a question about the writing business, the, mm-hmm. the music business, and the radio business. They've all changed, I guess, largely due to the Internet. And I'm wondering how the uh, writing business has, has changed recently. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. It's something I hope to mention, too. That You know, writing, uh, if you're doing it, I said before, it's a form of communication. It is that. We also regard it as an art form. So it's both communication and art. But then the third part of it, and you know, there's many more parts too, is that it is a commodity. It is something that you're hoping to sell, right? That there is a publishing industry. Um, and for a lot of people, the motivation might not to uh, be to become wealthy doing this, but just to kind of get your name out there, to get to find readers somehow. So I think that, you know, the more familiar you become with the market 
again, how are other people getting their names out there? How are they getting read? Uh, you know, you, ha you have to be aware of that as you're doing it. What's a good way to do this? So people, for instance, will, will blog, and that's a form of writing. That might be a way of developing, you know, uh, getting a publisher's interest eventually. Uh, so there's many different ways to do it. There's a lot of websites out there that will tell you how to do it. And there's a big difference between self-publishing and publishing um, for a, a traditional publishing house. I think that the difference, the big difference is that editorial process. There's an editor there who's going to tell you things. Uh, they may not be things you want to hear, but they are things that presumably will make a book more marketable. Um, but yeah, you have to kind of do some research uh, and not just think that since you've created something, everyone in the world is going to want to hear it or, you know, hang it on their wall or read it to, to kind of use the parallels between those industries. You, you have to think about how what the best ways are to, to get it out there and to observe the way other people are doing it. Like, wow, that, that's a really successful blog. How are they doing that? How are they uh, how are they managing to, to kind of connect? others which i think is ultimately the goal one thing that's valuable to do is and we may have brushed up against it but really think about your motivation what motivates you i i think that the classic way to think of a book is i'm going to write a book and it's going to sell to millions of people that's going yeah. to make me feel good but it turns out for me and i bet for a lot of people that mil the, the millions of people that are beyond the people i know don't really matter to me just a number mm -hmm. What really motivates me, and I bet it it's really what maybe subconsciously motivates others, is peer approval. If, yeah. if the people I know and respect see my work and respond, boy, that's a good yeah. job. Then that's like really what feeds me and the, un the unseen millions don't really provide that much gratification just yeah. of course some <clears throat> some abstract ego massage but other than that it's the peer appreciation and, and therefore you don't need to sell millions of books and therefore you don't really need a publisher right and which brings me i guess to the final question if if what drives you like me is peer approval then self-publishing is really an option yeah it might cost you some money but not you know not that much and you will have written a book that your peers see, there it is. You did it. Yeah. What, what about self-publishing? Is it more and more doable? Absolutely, yeah. It's uh, and and there are some you know companies that can make your book look really nice, and and you can hand them out to friends. And um, right, this is yeah. And 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 then yeah, if your friends are reading it, and I think that <laughs> that's the key. The worst feeling is if if you write something, whether or not you've published it, and you ask someone to read it. And they're like, yeah, yeah, I'll get around to that. And they don't. Uh, then maybe you need to find a new community of people who will. <laughs> There's, uh, there, there are other communities out there. And if if your friends aren't really readers and you've written it for their approval, then you know you you're you're kind of you feel a little bit um, of a missed opportunity there. But it just means that that they're not your readers, and maybe there are others. And uh, you know. Do you find that there's as much re internal reward for publishing something online? Because that's where they're going. Most people are going to read it, or a lot of people are going to read it, and where you can easily receive your positive feedback that feeds you and and rewards you is, is public. Maybe you don't even need to self-publish. What if you just put it, write stuff online, and share yeah. it with your friends? Is is that a valid thing? 
It, absolutely. And I mean, again, it depends on, on what your motivation is, but this is what people do on Facebook. Like it's instant publication, right? And there's responses right away. There's likes, there's comments, there's uh, the stuff you probably never hear. If you, if you've published a traditional book and somebody in, you know, Peoria reads it and uh, they love it, but you, you never get that feedback. Uh, so it, it, I guess it depends on, on uh, how much you need that. Yeah. If you're just to put it online and, uh, and see what people think immediately, that could be very gratifying for, for certain writers. Other writers are like, I don't even want that. If somebody didn't want, didn't like my work, I don't want to hear it. Uh, I, I would rather they just, you know, keep that to themselves. So you kind of have to consider that, I guess. It's it's difficult, the, the, the feedback. So you can get negative feedback from some just mean, vindictive person that's not at all legitimate. So you do have to grow a thick skin. And I guess yeah. you can't believe all the negative feedback you see. It's And it's probably tough to ferret out the legitimate feedback from just mean people. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, there's a, there's a website called Goodreads. I'm sure you've uh, maybe heard of it, maybe not, but it's it's kind of a social media site. And I was on it way back in the day, just as a way of keeping track of the books I read. Uh, and then I started exploring it a little bit, and I saw that, like with every you know internet, when people can comment, every Web 2.0 kind of situation, there is a lot of negativity, and it can it can become really distasteful, and you know. Uh, combative and if you don't want to enter into that you should just be aware of that. <laughs> yeah you are going to get negative feedback and you do have to have a thick skin and this is also by the way when you're when you're submitting things for publication you've got to have that it, for traditional publication you got to have that thick skin you got to expect to get rejected 50 times before you get accepted once uh and and if that's something you can't handle then you're going to have to go to a different venue because it's, it's just the the reality of the business Quentin Miller, a distinct pleasure. Once again, I just can't go wrong with Suffolk University. I walk by Suffolk University uh, four or five times a week, and I look over there and think, wow, uh, what a great place. But it's even better than I understood now that I get to speak with the folks who teach there like yourself. It's a real – we're lucky to have Suffolk University, and I, I appreciate the university, and I appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much. Before you go Thank away, you. Yep. Uh, we talked about doing uh, a section, uh, a segment like this on the Bob Dylan and the Beat mm -hmm. Generation. After we go off the air, so to speak, let's book that time. Can we do that? Sure. All right. Folks, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. If you like this and uh, if you want to get more involved with what I do, uh, there are these things are on Spotify. If that's more comfortable for you, if you want to listen in the car, they, they're they on pretty much, this will be pretty much on every platform. So check out those other platforms. Quentin Miller, thank you very much. Thank you. We'll be clear in about five and four and three.